With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This week's second edition of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro, and with me this week is Alex Nelson, because we figured out in episode 120 that the draft is next Monday. So we should probably do a draft preview, even though it's not going to be as exciting as the past couple of years, because I'm not a first-round pick. But Alex, how are you doing? Other than probably getting more sleep recently. <laughs> well, it's nice to be remembered, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's always a hectic time of year for me. So, how's your approach changed this year? Like, I mean, obviously, you're doing different pieces. You're not really going uh, into individual player profiles so much. Yeah, I, uh, when I told Eric that I was going to do things a little differently this year, I said I'm just not going to bother trying to guess what player the Mets are going to You have to, to write up like 40 guys. <laughs> there, I told them, no joke, there are 70, 75 guys that could legitimately be picked with the 53rd pick of the draft. It, it's not not a game I wanted to play in the slightest. Uh, so I decided to have a little bit more fun with it. Uh, I have another column going out tomorrow that uh, I'm actually excited to, pl- to write because it's a... Uh, what the Mets would have done if they had still, or if they hadn't have signed Michael Kadire, which is probably rubbing salt. In yeah, the, it's, it's not going to go readers, well but, right now. But I enjoyed it. We will get to the 2015 draft in short order, but as we do on these draft preview shows, we're going to take a look back five years to the 2010 draft, the last of the uh, Rudy Terrasis, uh, Tony Bernazard, Omar Minaya drafts. And as it so happens, Alex, I managed to dust some of the cobwebs off my bookshelf and find the Amazing Ooh. Avenue annual 2011 preview that features some thoughts on the 2010 draft class. And we'll start at the top, the seventh overall pick, who you described as reminiscent of Mike Pelfrey. Matt Harvey has neither Pelfrey's history of college performance nor his fastball command. He'll need to work on his secondary stuff, so he's something of a high-risk, high-reward signing. You did get the high-reward part of that right, at least. I did. I did. And, and to be fair, um, even Harvey as a good you know, national top 50 prospect 
before he became Matt Harvey, Major League Ace, was a very different pitcher than Matt Harvey, North Carolina Jr. I mean, I've said this before. I watched his start a couple weeks before his big league debut, and he looked nothing like he looked in his debut. It was... Uh, I, I didn't see Matt Harvey coming, and I, I mean, I deserve some blame for that because I was wrong. But there were a lot of people wrong on Harvey. Um, Baseball America wasn't that kind to him, and uh, John Sickles wasn't either. I believe Keith Law was a fan, but who cares about Keith Law? So, I, it's difficult to say what happened here other than, you know, either a light switch went off or Dan Worthen taught him his magical slider or, you know, sometimes pitching prospects do stuff like that. I Honestly, it, w- it was a combination of the slider and he, ju- he just got a lot finer with his command. And I think it's it, it's not like the talent. Even as a as a college guy, the talent was obviously in there. He was a, a second round pick as a prep arm. Oh sure, uh, he had a With, great freshman season at North Carolina, and then kind of fell well, off the cliff his sophomore year. The the scouting reports weren't as good as the numbers after his freshman year. Uh, pe- people said that he was he was getting away with things that would catch up to him sooner or later. And uh, so it wasn't totally surprising when he took a step back his sophomore year. And then he kind of figured things out his junior year, but there were still plenty of questions about, specifically about his command and really what kind of pitcher he was going to turn into. Uh, He had the premium arm strength, but at the time he was mostly relying on a a sinker-slider combo. And he, he did not become a sinker slider pitcher in the uh in the traditional sense. I do feel like in the past too he's given uh I mean obviously to Dan Worthen, but a uh a fair amount of credit to uh Phil Regan, the St. Lucie pitching coach too, for sort of helping him refine stuff. That was his first professional stop. But I don't even think, you know, Phil Regan saw this coming. And the Mets will probably tell you the same thing. There was some thought that he might be bored in AAA to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, you know, I watched a lot of those starts for Buffalo, and he looked like, you know, he looked like a guy that was going to be a good Major League starter. You know, sort sure. of that workhorse number three that'll have probably a few number two type seasons. You know, you'd watch him and... Some starts the curve would look a little better. Some starts the slider would look a little better. They both looked like like solid average pitches. You know the command with the fastball wasn't always there. And then, you know, they're in Arizona tonight. According to this on Thursday night, you know, he showed up in Arizona three years ago, and suddenly it's, it was a completely different pitcher on the mound. Yeah, I, I, like you said, it was it was a light switch type moment for him, and two. Two weeks before, I I watched him pitch and I said, he looks like he could be a good starter. I didn't see an ace there, but he became that and more. I remember it was a I think it was a Thursday night. I was watching in the in the bar after bowling. Got them to put the game on and just 
it was either the first or the second inning, he just uncorked this 89, one of the other, what we now know is sort of the Warthen slider. This 89 mile an hour slider that left one of them, maybe it was Goldschmidt, just completely befuddled. And I was like, who is this guy? And I, I said, wow, there was a, that is the definition of a plus slider. And I've never seen Mike Pelfrey throw one of those. <laughs> I think that was almost my, my tweet almost to the word. <laughs> I mean, obviously, Matt Harvey needs no real introduction to this podcast, but, you know, how much does a guy like that just, you know, looking back at the 2010 draft, and there, obviously, we'll get to Jacob deGrom, too, who has turned into an excellent Major League starter, but getting a star like that, even at the top of the draft, you know, you expect to get a significant Major League contributor at pick number seven, but how much is getting a star? Number nine, wasn't it? Uh, Harvey was seven. Oh, seven. Okay. That's uh, how much is getting a star like that sort of shape your opinion of the rest of the draft? Well, it certainly makes any any other contribution you get from the draft gravy. I mean, he he paid for probably seven or eight years worth of drafts right by, by the, this time right now. Uh, so I, it definitely changes your mind. I don't know if it necessarily nullifies uh, how well you pick with the rest of your selections, but it certainly makes things a lot easier. It's almost more of a, a peace of mind thing than anything else. Yeah, of course the Mets didn't have a second round pick that year. I'm going to guess was that K. Rod or Jason Bay, probably Jason Bay. Uh, yeah, I think so. In the third round, they selected Blake Forsythe, uh, who they eventually traded to Oakland for cash considerations. He's now in... A.K.A. nothing. A.K.A. nothing. He's now in the, uh, I think he's the backup catcher at the Phillies AAA affiliate. That's correct. In Lehigh Valley. I did notice that they promote... I follow a lot of Phillies dudes on Twitter, like Phillies prospect people on Twitter, so I did notice that Forsythe got promoted to their AAA team. Um... (laughs) I have no idea why. I think somebody just got hurt. Yeah, I think so. I think Tommy Joseph got hurt. Oh, that's right. Yes, he did. So, uh, yeah, Blake Forsythe. I, you know, I saw him a fair amount in Binghamton. And I think he was actually catching... Was he catching over Juan Centineau? I think for briefly they had... It was Centineau, Francisco Pena, and Blake Forsythe. Oh, that's quite a trio that right there. That is quite a trio. Um... But Forsyth was, yeah, just not a good defensive catcher. He could run into one every once in a while. And I mean, I get it. Uh, you know, his brother's been a sort of journeyman, fringy major leaguer for a while, so there's some bloodlines mm-hmm. there. But once again, for another draft review, I will quote the infamous uh, Kevin Goldstein tweet, it's not a draft until the Mets overdraft a catcher. <laughs> Well, they they definitely overdrafted there. I I didn't wouldn't have minded Blake Forsythe three rounds later. Um, he had I mentioned this in my sort of review uh, la- earlier this week or last week I don't remember. And uh, I said that at one point people were legit talking about Forsythe as a as a maybe a supplemental guy or a first late first round pick, but he just didn't hit at all in, in his uh, junior season and that 
talk quickly died away. And it, it became clear that he just didn't have the contact skills to to go any further. I probably should have prepped this by, like, actually uh, looking up his major league or minor league numbers. But for the record, Blake Forsyth is whoa. Why do they have Baseball Reference just like no longer acknowledges that Blake Forsyth is playing in the uh, is playing in 2015. Even though they have his game... Oh, they don't have his game logs. Like, baseball reference is very confused by the existence of Blake Forsyth. But for the Lehigh Valley... Iron Pig. Well, for the year, he's hitting a 219, 306, 281. A little less power than I thought would, would have thought. But. Yeah. Zero home runs. But he's only played uh, 11 games. So he's like in that... I think he's in that once a week catcher spot for uh May you be rich. So rich Keep living the dream, Blake. Yeah. Those guys those guys catch forever though. Those like once a week catcher like uh Kai Gronauer. I I every time I mention Kai Gronauer on the podcast, I feel like I mentioned that he's just sort of like one of those once a week guys. And has been for about I don't six, know what he I mean, he hasn't popped up yet this year, but he's he again he's one of those guys where he can just step directly into a coaching role as soon as he doesn't want to. He might just be catching dudes in extended spring training, just showing up. Because you always need catchers. And he speaks like six languages, so. Yeah, but how many of them are useful? I think he does speak Spanish. The German's I... probably not as useful, but. Right, right. Or the French. So moving on from Blake Forsyth, we've already spent way more time on this podcast talking about Blake Forsyth than I ever thought we would. Uh, a couple of, well, college center fielders in rounds four and five, Corey Vaughn and Matt Dendecker. Oh. They were... These were, guys. we talked about this last year. These were the the classic sort of Omar Mania tools guys without as many tools as you would think. And a lot older than they should have been. Hmm. Well, Dan Decker was a senior. Was a senior, and Corey Vaughn was a college junior. But usually when you're drafting people with Corey Vaughn's profile, they're 18 years old. Yeah, he never hit a ton in college. Nah, he was as a I recall. low performance guy until his uh, his junior season when he hit uh, 378. But uh, I, w- I was very, very concerned about his swing. There, there was some real length to it. Well, he, and, at uh, least when he was drafted, he didn't have the really weird, like, high back elbow cock with the bat, like, almost at a 45-degree angle forward. Yeah, my of, notes aren't quite that descriptive. I remember... But I uh, remember he had that early in his... Uh, yeah, Mike Newman posted some... I remember just remember the first time I remember seeing any video of him was when he was in Savannah. And Mike Newman posted it, and it just was like, oh my god, what is that? That is not going to work. <laughs> By the time I saw him, and I don't think I saw him until Binghamton, it had, he had calmed it down a little bit, but it was still very upper body heavy. Uh, I think it was oh, two two and a half years ago. Maybe he he streamlined his swing quite a bit, and he he saw some initial results, and then nothing. 
But he, I mean, it's easy to see. I remember last year, I think I've told the story in the podcast before, but that's never stopped me. Um, <laughs> I was watching Binghamton early last year, and I'm sort of just sitting there taking my notes. It's the first game of the series. You know, I watched BP. I'm getting settled. The game starts. Um, I'm like half paying attention. It's the second inning. And I just sort of glance over to the on-deck circle, and I'm like, who the heck is that dude? And of course, it was Corey Vaughn. Because he's in like seventh or something at that point because it was a hitting. But, you know, the guy looks like a Major League oh, Baseball he, player. He he absolutely looks the part of, of the Major League Ball player. I mean, he you you could watch him, and there'd be moments where you'd where you'd where you'd squint a little bit, and you'd be able to see a major league player. And unfortunately, those moments were were too far between for him to really gain any traction. Yeah, he never made quite enough contact, uh, and he was just good enough to sort of get your hopes up. Yeah, every for, once in a while a he'd, uh, you know, he had that when he repeated, uh, well, yeah, we'll say repeated advanced day in 2012. He hit 23 home runs. You know, he was 23, but you know, maybe something happens, and then he spent. He had some injuries. He never kind of, never really hit a ton in Double A. You know, the Vegas bump hasn't really happened for him either, but... You know, is that... You know, it's, it's a fourth-round pick, so that kind of stuff happens, but it's also the kind of stuff that you probably could have seen happening at the time. What do you mean? The... Sort of topping out in... The oh, yeah. minor stuff. Yeah, I, I... I didn't have much hope for him. I, I thought Double A would expose him. And I guess that was kind of right. I think that's that's reasonably fair. I mean, for his career in Double A, he hit two thirty six, three twenty, three seventy two. Yeah, that's not yeah, for a for a corner outfield profile. That's not going to get it done. Yeah, that is not going to get it done. And he didn't really do much in his Vegas promotion last year. You know, this year he's hitting let's see yeah 644 OPS in Vegas Ooh, it's not good it's uh I think it's about time that Corey uh well, yeah, calls I, it quits I think he's got another year until he's a minor league free agent is that true what do you mean Fifteen. This is his sixth year, so yeah, he'll be a minor league free agent after this year. And I imagine he, you know, he's athletic enough; he'll pop around here and there. You think so? Yeah, I, I think usually those guys. I feel like they at least catch on with one other team. If uh, who is it? If uh, Brian Maldonado can catch on with another team as a minor league free agent, I feel like uh, Vaughn will get a shot. Well, that's news to me. I had no idea Ibrahim had uh, found another home. Well, when the when he initially left the Mets as a as a minor league FA, he popped up in a Atlanta Atlanta system for a while, for like a year, I think. 
Well, I guess I everybody needs to, somebody. Yeah, I just remember him because he was a roster, uh, but he popped up in Winter Ball last year. Oddly enough, oh. but, uh, I just remember uh, he's one of sort of those uh, mayor of Binghamton types. Oh, was he? Yeah, he spent a couple of years there. And I remember. In 2011, I yeah, so I had just sort of started doing stuff for the site, and uh, it was one of those things where you see him in BP and it's just like monster pull power. I mean, he hit 28 home runs that year for Binghamton. Did he really? Yes, in 131 games. But he also hit a 222, 285, 453. Yeah, well, God, was I run? I think I might have had the minor league beat that year. Yeah. You'd think I'd remember that. I mean, the year before, he hit 21 homers between. I mean, the dude could hit a ball a mile. He just sure, didn't make sure. enough contact. But Manta and Decker worked out a little bit better. He made the pros. He made the pros. Or the, uh, the big leagues, I should say. Yeah. Um, and he, he had one thing that Corey Vaughn never did. He could play center field. He could play center field. And... and play it fairly well. He's not as good as I think people had hoped, but he is a fairly good center fielder. Yeah, it's one of those things where he was never a burner, and he's older than people think he is. Well, I mean, he, he uh, at one point he was a uh, a burner. Yeah. He, he had speed when he was in high school, which is when my history with him goes back to. Yeah. But it's one of those that you don't, like... You made some of those great plays in the College World Series that sort of stick out for you. But by the time I think I saw him, it was more like, you know, and I don't want to I don't want to sort of turn my nose up at this, but he was more like a 55 to 60 center fielder, which is great. But I think sort of the impression among Mets fans was he was sort of what Juan Lagares is, which was never really sure. the case. And it's... There, there are very, very few baseball players that, when they're drafted, you can, you look at them and know that they're going to be Juan Lagares talents in, mm-hmm. in the outfield. It just doesn't happen. So when you when you call somebody a plus center fielder, you mean you mean he's probably going to be an above average center fielder in the majors, and I think that's pretty much what a reasonable projection for Den Decker's uh, uh, defensive skills at the time were. And I do think, too, Mets, it, the combination of him always being a little old for level for levels, and I think Mets fans, sort of their opinion of Den Decker always outpaced, you know, what his actual sort of, like, prospect status was. Oh, Absolutely. And there was some, I mean, there was some unluckiness there. He got hurt in spring training. Uh, I said in 2013. Um, so when Torres, Andres Torres got right, hurt, right. you know, he probably would have been the call-up over Lagares in that spot. Sure. Uh, so he didn't get that opportunity. And then once, you know, Juan Lagares showed up and was Juan Lagares, it was kind of always over, not over for him, but he was always going to be, he was never going to get that shot to be an everyday center fielder. Not that I, I mean, I think what would have happened, what happened, him would have happened anyway. If they put him in center field, he just wouldn't have hit enough. I think in any organization, he would 
there in an organization with any kind of outfield depth, I don't think Den Decker would have ever had a chance to be an everyday center fielder. He's always going to be like a fourth, fifth outfielder type. Right. He he just he didn't quite have enough power and he he just swung and missed too much. And I mean, I definitely saw it in Binghamton. The swing just... He never... He always just looked like he was like a... I, I don't like to use the phrase max effort when talking about hitters, but it's very much a max effort swing from Dendecker. It gets long. There's some moving parts there. He never, like, got the... It was like a Kirk Neuenheis swing without Kirk Neuenheis's power, I guess is the best way to put it. Yeah, yeah. I, I At least... At least when I was actually paying attention to him, which was quite a while ago, he uh, he used to rob himself of, of his power by just put it, bringing his weight forward too too early. And you know, some guys learn to to sort of wait on the pitch, and most of them don't. And Den Decker probably was was more the the latter. That brings us to uh, round six, and Greg Peavy. I believe is as of this spring no longer in the Mets organization. Is he gone now? I think he is. Yeah, I saw a fair amount of him. Now there was like a he was considered a fairly decent draft prospect, as I recall. Uh, at one point, the problem was that it was probably when he was in high school. Yeah. Um, he was one of those guys. Yeah, I feel like he was one of those guys that was a good prep. Hey, he was all right. He threw player and then sort of underperformed. He threw eighty-eight to ninety-one, probably. And that's about where he was in the pros too. Uh, he just never gained anything, and I don't know whether you, how much of an expectation there was that he'd gain more velocity because I don't I don't think he ever had much projection. But the hope was that his slider would become a better pitch, and it, it was always kind of flat. Yeah, it did. There's, He's one of those guys that you just, you know, generic double-A starter, basically. He was utterly boring. Yeah. Slightly more exciting in round seven, Jeff Walters. Currently on the uh, shelf with Tommy John surgery. I'm sure he'll pop up in, in rehab in the next month or two. I think he had it last summer. Though he is, uh, let's see, I can do math, 27 now. Uh, Jeff Walters, I, I have a fun Jeff Walters story. I saw him in Brooklyn as a starter. How been that? 2011? Yeah, it been 2011. And he looked very nondescript. 88 to 91, sinker slider type. They moved him to the bullpen in 2012. Uh... All of a sudden, I've got, like, Toby Hyde blowing up my G-chat. Talking about how he, his velocity bumped up. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Good for him. He pops up in 2013 in Binghamton as their closer with long hair, throwing 92 to 96. <laughs> God bless the reliever bump. Well, he, he always had that ability. I mean, he was a... Uh... When he when he'd throw in relief in college, he he did get it up to ninety five, but when he went the sinker route, it, it was more the eighty eight to ninety two. God bless you. See, that's something you don't see anymore. Even even going back to like two thousand and ten, the whole starting on Friday, closing on Sunday thing. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> oh 
pitch counts. Well, unless you're Kent Emanuel, I guess. <laughs> so I have to say, uh, Alex, I have no memory of Kenneth McDowell. So you're going to have to help me out here. Well, I don't have much memory of him either. <laughs> Did they not sign him? No, no, he, uh, he, he signed, and, uh... By his I, age, he was a Juco guy? Yeah, he was a Juco guy. I believe he was a, uh, Southern Nevada guy. I don't so know, he, I can look this up. You he was what you remember. A, a teammate of Bryce Harper's, and I believe he was another sinker guy, but I might be misremembering. I'm actually pulling up my scouting report on him. I like that, uh... The Mets probably only drafted him because they were saw him while they were scouting Bryce Harper. Like Bryce oh, Harper he, was going to fall to were, them at seven. <laughs> there were a couple of Southern Nevada guys that got drafted purely because because every but every scout in the world was. Well, well this happened uh, last year too. I think I don't know if I've talked about it on air, but uh, a bunch of the University of Hartford guys got drafted. I think. I mean, maybe they would have gotten drafted anywhere anyway, but it didn't hurt that. There were 30 scouts there to see Sean Newcomb every start. Sure. So, uh, you know, Brian Hunter there, since it's... Brian Hunter probably had the best gig in the world because it's... In the Northeast, they don't do Friday night starters. They're all Saturday doubleheaders. Mm-hmm. So he just... They, he would pitch the game, too. And enough of the scouts would stick around that he'd... Uh, make he'd an impression. Th- he'd make an impression. And he ended up getting picked by the Reds. I think he was like a round nine senior guy. And he's uh, in the Midwest League right now, in in the bullpen and doing pretty decent. It happens every year. He could be like a double, you know, double A reliever. And I liked him when I, I think I actually run him up for the site because, like everybody else, I was there. So <laughs> I'm like, well, as long as I'm here, I'll get video of this guy and write him up because why not? But he's, uh, you know, whatever. He's he's old for the Midwest League, but he's. Looked pretty good there so far. So he's got a shot. He's a fastball slider guy, converted catcher, bulldog on the mound, big guy. So why not? Sure. But him and the he got drafted in their catcher, whose name I can't remember off the top of my head, got picked like in the twenties or something. That's yeah, that stuff happens all the time. Kenneth McDowell. Uh, my notes here say that he was eighty-seven to ninety-two, soft curve. Uh, changeup was below average. I said he might have a chance if you turn him into a relief arm, but otherwise there there wasn't much to hope on. He pitched in relief in 2011 for the Gulf Coast League and the Appy League team. Mitched, missed all of 2012, so I'm going to guess there was an injury there. And then popped up in uh, Indie Ball. At least as of 2014 was still pitching in uh, the Pacific Association. And we'll round out our review of the 2010 draft, at least the top 10 rounds, with the Kill Morris. No Jake DeGrom? Oh, I skipped Jacob. I just completely skipped Jacob DeGrom. (laughs) So yeah, Jacob DeGrom worked out pretty well. He did okay. We may have buried the lead a bit here. (laughs) So, uh, go ahead. So he went to Kingsport the end of 2010, immediately got hurt, or at least sometime in the 
2010 offseason, 2011 spring got hurt, missed all of 2011, popped up a few months into 2012 with Savannah. My favorite Jacob deGrom story is I went to see them in Lakewood the beginning of 2012? No, it would have been towards the end of 2012. Yeah, I think he spent all of 2012 in, in Savannah, or at least most of it. So they had a four-game set at the end of July, end of June, beginning of July, sometime in July. I remember if they met, I, I was going there specifically to see Matt Reynolds. And I end up seeing, uh, I can actually go back and look at this exact, uh, well, to make a long story short, they had a getaway day game that DeGrom was pitching. And, yeah, okay, so I saw Matt, Yanoa, and Verrett? No, it wouldn't have been Verrett that year. Would have been the third guy I saw. I saw Matt, Yanoa. I don't know. But anyway, it was... Uh, I At the time, my wife was living in Brooklyn, so I was just commuting back and forth from Brooklyn to Lakewood, and it was like 50 minutes on the uh, Garden State. And I just decided to skip the uh, Jacob deGrom, like, Monday getaway day game. <laughs> Which is too bad. Just decided to skip it, huh? Yeah, I decided to skip it. I didn't feel like driving back down. I think he actually struck out. Like he had a double strikeout game to that. Uh, that did day. you feel bad about skipping it, or was I did? It just... I did feel bad. Like I'm actually looking at the wrong year. I'm looking at 2013 for some reason. 2012. How did I see? Because I knew I saw Logan Verrett, so it had to have been 2012. It's a four-game series. I saw. I saw Verrett. I saw. I want to say. Oh, Domingo Tapia. So yeah, I saw Tapia. I saw Verrett. And. I want to say. I saw Fulmer for Savannah, but not there. I saw him in Savannah. And I don't think I saw. Did I see Montero for Savannah? I could actually go back and look this up. This is like riveting television. It might have been Tyler Pill. Pill sounds right. Yeah. But yeah, I skipped the uh, Jacob DeGrom getaway day. I did feel bad about it. But not that bad. Hang on, I take this call from my wife. <laughs> Yellow. Hey. I'm at the apartment. All right, you gonna be home soon? Yeah, I did. I just I had to record a podcast, which I'm doing right now. All right, that's fine. I'll see you a bit. All right. So to make a long story short, we all missed the boat on Jacob Degrom. Is what happened sure. there. I did call him a sleeper, but... <laughs> okay, okay. You want to take a... <laughs> He's one of the 20 best pitchers in baseball, Alex. <laughs> totally saw it coming. Yeah. You and Keith Law. 
<laughs> That's right. <laughs> Who also had him as a sleeper, I think. But outside of his top ten. I mean, look, it's... Yeah, the one time I did see Jacob deGrom, I think I probably described it on the podcast, because it was like a couple of years ago, it was like dog shit, 95 degrees and humid in New Britain. He went like four and two-thirds, just laboring through every pitch. You know, flash the slider we know and love, flash the good change-up. But just, it was, you know, 91 to 94. Just, there was just, it was just, you know, it was dog shit weather. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, it's, it wasn't that... You know, he's another guy like Matt Harvey. It wasn't that uncommon. You know, even in, in good weather, he was... You look at sort of his peripherals at that level. His average strikeout rate, average walk rate, you know, would show you... I mean, he looks like a guy who could be a number four starter or a setup dude. And I think the Mets saw him as that, too. Cause when they called him up, it was going to be a couple turns around, and he'd probably move to the bullpen. Right. And then, you know, Montero then, didn't do much, and they moved Mejia to the pen, and they had a spot for him, so they let him pitch, and now he's one of the 20 best pitchers in baseball. Hey, it happens every once in a while. It does. The Mets got two of them in one draft. Yeah. So here's my... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go off on a little bit of a tangent here. You know, we joke about sort of like Omar's team versus Sandy's mess, and... Even still to this day, you see, you know, Omar Manaya getting credit for Jacob Degrom. What you know? Who who gets credit for Jacob Degrom? I I in Degrom's case, I think it really is a case of a marriage of scouting and player development. Uh because I, there definitely was raw material to work with with, with DeGrom. He, he was six foot four with a 185-pound frame. Uh, it was very possible to imagine him adding a mile and mile per hour or two, especially considering how new he, to pitching he was. And you, you'd, you'd see the slider from time to time. And uh, so the raw material was definitely there, and it was really a matter of making it come out consistently and the player development folks really did a great job working working with him of course there's the the great story of Johan Santana teaching him the change up grip and you know Toby Hyde on his podcast it's sort of more in depth sort of following Jacob deGrom's you know minor league career and all Jacob deGrom this is your life kind of stuff but I mean you see conversion guys like this all the time they just turn into maybe if you're lucky major league relievers you know sort of the the story is you find uh you know an infielder that can throw or a catcher that can throw in the low 90s but really can't hit you put him on the mound you try to teach him a slider and see what happens yep you know they're trying to like jason mott or henry owens and they almost always they almost always become relievers yeah you're, and I that think, was probably what the uh, the uh, real projection for him coming out of college was. I I said using him as a re- reliever will speed speed things along, but there is enough there that I want to see him as a starter. And uh, he did he he just he he is a best case scenario. 
I mean, we're talking about guys that have hit their ceiling. <laughs> Jacob DeGrom may have actually, like, you know, broken through it. Right. But, I mean, this this stuff happens. It just sort of... And there, and there is sort of a, a marriage of things going on here. And you have to be able to identify talent. And Jake DeGrom had obvious talent. Yes. But not so much talent you were taking him before the ninth round of the draft. I mean, he went... 272 overall. And it's not like, you know, Stetson is this tiny college that nobody sees. No, Stetson, you don't see it often and you don't go out of your way to see Stetson. But they play enough games against other Florida colleges where scouts are in regular attendance where somebody would have seen Jacob deGrom. Yes, and as I joke... Other other than the Met scout. As I joke regularly, Florida has more scouts per capita than... (laughs) Any other state in the country. (laughs) As somebody who now lives there, there are a lot of scouts in every game I'm at. You know, he immediately got Tommy John surgery, and it gets into sort of, you know, who gets credit. There's sort of this, I think, idea among more, I don't don't say more casual fans of the team, more casual fans of prospects that, you know, you draft these guys, you sprinkle them with a little bit of water and they just grow into whatever they're going to grow to no matter what. But, you know, guys will flourish in some systems that wouldn't flourish in others. Every team has probably slightly different sort of player development philosophies. And, and that that's absolutely true. And one of, one of the things I've always wanted to figure out is how much teams take that into account when they draft. If they know they have certain player development personnel in place, maybe they're more likely to go for somebody with a developing slider or developing changeup. And uh, I did once ask, I think it was Paul DePodesta about this, and his answer was, we don't really think about that at all. So maybe the fans kind of have it right after all, but (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I mean, it does seem like even... You know, this front office didn't entirely know what they had with Jacob DeGrom. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. You know, that whatever they sort of... Oh, I think that's absolutely true, though, that they didn't fully know what they had. I think they felt that they had somebody who could be a starter. Yeah. But a top 20 starter? No. They, they had no idea. And sometimes, you, I mean, like, with any prospect, and pitcher, position players... You really don't know anything until you see them against major league competition, for good no. or for ill. You just don't. Now we will actually round out the top ten of the 2010 draft with the Kiel Morris. <laughs> uh, he was he was young. He was tiny, and he could throw 94. He's still tiny. He's less young, and he can throw 94. And otherwise, he probably hasn't changed a whole lot. No. Um. Yeah. Other minor league writers for the site like Morris more than I do, but he's got a chance. It's like, you know, it's whippy, it's dead over the top. Right. He's got a 78-mile-an-hour changeup that doesn't do much, but it's 78 miles an hour and he throws 94, so it at least keeps you off balance. You know, can he be Gonzalez Herman? Yeah, why not? It's not a bad outcome. Gonzalez Herman's cool enough, I guess. Yeah, or are you? Would you bet on him becoming Gonzalez Herman? 
I don't think you could bet on anybody becoming Gonzalez or Men. No. So. He's on the 40-man. If he's getting that, that sweet, sweet 40-man money. <laughs> See the first man off the 40-man if they need to clear a spot? Um, no. Who is that? I, I don't know why they would have added him. It's going to be like Johnny Manel, probably. Oh, probably, yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. He is a catcher. Yeah, that's true. You always need catchers. So not much past round 10. Um, I think there's only two players still with the organization. I scan quickly. Three people, so the organization, sorry. Um, Adam Kalarik, who's kind of top, topped out in double-A. Uh, Eric Goodell, who's in the Major League bullpen, but got, you know, he went in the 24th round, but got top five-round money. Mm-hmm. College closer at UCLA. He was a draft-eligible sophomore that year, as I recall. Yes, he was. And no, nobody thought he would sign, because his family was very rich, and he didn't need the money, and not only was his family very rich, they were academics. So everybody kind of thought he was in college for the long haul. But he's worked and out, I think, pretty damn well. So far, so good. Yeah. I mean, he looks like a major league reliever, which works for me. I feel bad. I feel good, I should say, because I wrote a piece a few years ago saying that Goodell, of, of, <laughs> of Goodell, Logan Verrett, and Tyler Pell, because I saw them in a a set in Binghamton probably had the best major league future. Oh, good for you. Good, yeah. That's, that's <laughs> what I had to say. I don't even know how to, like, balance that, but yeah, I'm going to take credit for it. I, I always liked Verrett. I, uh, I mean, I, I liked Logan. I still like Logan Verrett, and I think he could be a... I repeatedly refer to him as the poor man's Luke Gregerson. But, uh... I mean, yeah. I, I liked all three guys, I should say. Yeah. Uh, Pill... Pill hasn't developed the way people hoped, but I I liked him at the time. And the third guy is Josh Edgen, also currently on the shelf with uh, Tommy John surgery, but you know, a guy that made the majors and has been a useful yes major league major piece. I think Ryan Frazier is no longer with the organization. I think he's the only other like sort of the last holdout of this group. Is Hamilton Bennett gone now? Hamilton Bennett, yeah, he asked for his release last year. Yeah, that's probably it. Uh, Jessen Digistel Therian is in the Philly system now, but they didn't sign him originally when they drafted him in the 36th round. That's uh, important information. Josh sure. Easley might still be around. He was Josh regarded Easley. at least. Let me see. We'll find out. This is how we'll wrap up our uh, 2010 draft review with me Google searching. Oh, he's been released. All right. He last showed up in 2014 in the Sally League for Greensboro. Uh, 14 games as a reliever. 3.63 3.63 ERA in 17 innings pitched. He ended up getting redrafted in the 23rd round out of NC State by the Miami Marlins. So there's your Josh Easley update. We should probably move to the 2015. You know, so. should probably move to the 2015 draft, <laughs> which is the Three purpose of having the. Yeah, that's the other problem. The purpose of having this podcast. 
So, in case you missed it, the Mets do not have a first-round pick this year. They forfeited their number 15 overall pick to sign Michael Kadire, which I'm sure we are all thrilled about. I can't believe I came out of hibernation just for this. But you did. You've been writing a few pieces on the, on the site over the last week, sort of, you know, what do you do with the 53rd overall pick? So what do you do with the 53rd overall pick, Alex Nelson? Well, I know if, if it were up to me, I'd probably go cheap on the pick so I could take a gamble on a couple of different guys later on. So there's... We should be clear. The Mets have about three and a half million to spend. That's not a lot of money. No, it's a, it's. I think it's the smallest draft pool in the draft. I would imagine it is. They don't have a first round pick. They don't have a comp balance pick. They don't have a supplemental pick. And if you go slot, you're going to spend a third of that money on yes. your second round pick. The slot is about one point one million. So you know, you wrote about some people that may dropped to them earlier in the week, guys like uh, Brady Aiken, but Brady Aiken is not signing for $1.1 million. He might not even be signing for $3.5 million. <laughs> Might not be. Uh, I think I think if somebody comes along and offers him three point five, he's taking it. But, but realistically, not... what can the Mets offer here? Oh, I don't think they could offer any pitcher more than two. two. So I mean, it gets you back end of the first round money, basically. Right. Um, but you said you would go a little under slot here, you know, maybe take a signable college guy that, you know, the BA 500 sees as more of a late second, early third round pick and then maybe, you know, take a shot on a three or four $350,000 guy, $350,000 prep arms, like oh, 10 to 15 see, or something like that. See who's sitting there and maybe even wait till after round 10 so that you get the extra little, little, little cushion. Yeah. Um, and they haven't been afraid. That's if you want to look sort of where they've maybe spent a little extra money, sort of in these Tommy Tannis drafts. They are not afraid to go a little over slot for those sort of ten to eleven to fifteen round prep arms. It's been a thing they've certainly done. No, they they certainly haven't had any fear in that regard. Um, last year they took uh, quite a few of them actually. Eric Manoa and Gabe Yanis and a couple of guys who really nobody expected to uh, uh, really expected them to, to grab. Yeah, and then going back further, you know, they grabbed guys like uh, Chris Flexen, Tyler Bashlor. And they haven't been afraid to go sort of where they've gone over slot consistently has sort of been in that in that mold of those type of guys. And that's just the way the economics of the draft are really set up. So if you're going to go for a college guy in that general range, who's your who's your dude? Yeah, we're just like throwing darts at a board here, basically, because there's 50 guys easily that could be on their radar and be available at the 53rd overall pick. Well, uh, and 
just to make clear, this really is throwing darts at a board. I mean, I no, think. there's no information is the problem here, too. Yeah. Like, nobody is mock drafting the Mets' 53rd overall pick. So no one's even bothered reporting on, you know, guys Tommy Tannis is seeing. Yeah, I mean, we ha- we have no idea what's going on with this pick. We have an idea of the type of players they like in this general wow. range, but it could be a Matt Reynolds or it could be an Andrew Church. Right, right. And, uh, I mean, if if they're going to go for a, a Matt Reynolds type, I think it's probably going to be, or I think one good candidate would be Mikey White, who's the Alabama shortstop. Kind of a low upside guy, but there are a lot of shortstops uh, available in this draft, and he's probably getting overlooked a bit. They drafted him before. They have drafted him before. I think it was 2012? Yep. 34th round. And he, uh, you know, he, he's good at putting ba- putting the bat on the ball. Probably doesn't have a whole lot of power, but he's got some. And uh, is he going to stick at shortstop? I think he could if a team was motivated to keep him there. Like they were with Matt Reynolds? <laughs> exactly. Uh, I, I think... I think he might be a better shortstop than Matt Reynolds probably is, but or at least could have been projected to be at the time. Um, but he, I mean, there's a good chance he ends up at second. And in all honesty, he's probably a, more of a utility player at, at the next level. But we are talking about the, the 53rd, 53rd overall pick. And that's the thing pick. I think we have to sort of throw to the caveat here is. I don't know if people realize how fast and this is not a good draft class either. Yeah, I, a lot of people are saying that. I don't think it's quite that bad. Um, you know, you don't have that top, those top couple of talents that really make the class stand out. But I, I don't think it's that much worse than... But any draft, by the time you get down to the 53rd pick, you're dealing with guys like Matt Reynolds. Yeah. Uh, it's you're, you're not getting somebody who's going to project as a star and if they if if you can see a star he's going to be a long way away and he's going to need to make some very very significant improvements that probably aren't going to happen so if they do go in the other direction say a uh, say a prep arm like Andrew Church there seems like a fair amount of guys in that general range, as there are most years. You know, prep pitchers with flaws. There are a couple of them. Um, uh, There are four guys in Florida. Um, Juan Hillman, Jake Woodford, uh, Tristan McKenzie, Brady Singer. Uh, All four of them would be available in the neighborhood right there it, it depends maybe some team jumps up to grab them and that's the, the other problem we say when you're picking 53rd is you really have no if you're picking 15th you probably have a decent idea of who's going to be available when you're picking 53rd you really don't know you have to have some contingency plans here sure I mean you I, back when I was shadow, shadow drafting but trying to do it in real time you don't know how often my 4th or 5th choice would be taken off off the board right before I picked it's it's just very very difficult to 
know who's going to be there. So you, you ju- and you only have a couple of seconds really to make the decision. But of those prep arms you just listed off, who uh, who do you think is maybe like more of a of a? I mean, it's, you can take your guy or who you think like the Mets guy might be. I if my guy would probably be Juan Hillman. He's a little bit more polished, but his velocity really hasn't been there this year. Um, he's been throwing mostly in the in the mid to high 80s, but he he can get it a little bit faster than that, and and routinely did last year. Uh, but that said, he he can have a good breaking ball. He, he has some command, and he's got a nice nice delivery. But their guy. If I had to guess of the four, it would probably be Woodford, who uh, has a little bit more fastball. Um, he's a big dude, too, as I recall. He, he's a bi- much bigger guy. He's 6'5", 200 pounds or so, maybe more. And, uh, you know, he, he needs to refine his breaking ball a little more. It's a little soft. Um, but he, he has the makings of a good starter. And uh, he just needs a little time and a, a little bit of work. The Mets will probably take none of these people because, again, we're oh, throwing darts at a board. Uh, a guy that jumped out at me, and I, I will say this solely as sort of scanning the BA 500. I'm not going to – that's my methodology this year. I didn't see a ton of amateur stuff. And, again, you're kind of throwing darts at a board. Uh, Nolan Watson a prep arm out of Georgia Indianapolis Indiana oh I'm sorry Indianapolis that's right um, he seems like their their type of arm some command feel for secondaries clean delivery uh, nah, I, I like him a lot but he's a Vanderbilt commit probably not signing <laughs> But that's the kind of guy that you know maybe you think about going the towards that two million dollar number for, and it, it's one of those things where your scouts' interactions with the kid, right, tells you sort are, of are going to tell you a lot because if the scout says I think we could sign him for one point four one point five, then maybe it, I certainly in a in a draft where I don't have a first round pick I pull the trigger on that, but otherwise I don't know. I just. If you like college closers, there's gonna be a ton of college closers, Alex. I know you love college closers. I hate college closers. <laughs> I not... never ever want to touch a college closer. Very rarely do I want to touch a college closer. Although I think it was right around this pick last year that uh, uh, Lindgren was picked, and he's yeah. already for the majors. Sure. I don't see. Uh... Short of Jeff Wilpon taking over the draft board, I don't see. I don't, uh, I don't think. I don't think that's a, a uh, ta- Tommy Tannis pick. No, not in a draft where you don't have a first. Ah, oh, this is so boring. It's it's not an exciting. Okay, so I don't want you to scoop yourself, but so you have the fifteenth overall pick. Because you're writing about it, and we need something else to talk about. Well, it it depends entirely upon who's there. Right. It does seem like the... It sounds like Dansby Swanson is going number one overall to Arizona. 
Is that the latest buzz? I that is the latest buzz, yeah. Because the Mets aren't there, so who cares? Yeah, <laughs> I know. So there Swanson some, is going first, huh? Yeah, there was some buzz on uh, Garrett Whitley as an underslot guy. I love Garrett Whitley. About a month ago or so, but... I absolutely love Garrett Whitley. Did you like Brandon Nemo? No, not really. <laughs> See, that's funny, because I, I, the, 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 the people I've s- talked to that have seen Whitley... I think it's like Nemo with a little bit more. I know. I've I've tools. heard the comp a couple of times. He here's the difference between Garrett Whitley and Brandon Nemo. Whitley's bat speed is much. It, yeah, I that, I mean, has, I, that's fair. I, I I heard that as well. So that's. I think Whitley has the best bat speed in this draft. Um, he's very much a fast twitch athlete. He he needs. He he's going to need a lot of time, but I I think he's got a ceiling, and I think he could be a very good outfielder. I should point out this draft makes me feel. I mean, everything makes me feel old now. But the fact that Mike Cameron's kid is going to get picked in like the top ten <laughs> picks, this is just brutal. And I mean, he's not the only one. Uh, is that Charlie Hayes' kid? Charlie Hayes' kid is is, is in also this in this draft. Yeah, there's a couple others too. It's always something. I mean, we're only a year away from the first, like, 2,000 babies going on July 2nd, so... <laughs> it's kind uh, of brutal. Uh, but getting back to the Mets hypothetical 15th overall pick. Who's a guy in that general range that you, uh... that you're targeting? If one of the high school outfielders fall... Uh, Plummer uh, and Clark. Right. Um, or t- even Tucker... Uh, I, I'm taking a good long look at that. Um, and I think one of them probably will be there at, at 15. Because um, there's just... Tucker does seem like a Mets pick. A Tannis pick, specifically. You know, I like Tucker. He, there's a little bit of sniff, stiffness to him. Yeah. When he swings. But, but I, I do think that he probably would be the best pick you could hope to grab at 15. You know, he's got the approach and the Major League bloodlines, which seems to be a thing that's If Colby Allard is there, I I grab him in a heartbeat. I think he's a... uh, I think he's the best prep pitcher in this draft. This is all useful information to teams picking around in and around number 15. (laughs) Teams that did not sign Mike Kadire. Yeah. I'm I'm a little bit bitter about this. So I mean, this is like this is like your I don't want to say your Christmas. But this is like your uh, it's your this is your moment to shine. I mean, every other month of the year, nobody cares about me, but right. this, the Mets took it away from me. And the best you can come up with is like you know Brady Aiken might drop, but the Mets won't. Mets can't and shouldn't <laughs> sign him. <laughs> uh. That's, uh, somebody else I'd consider taking Ian Happ. Uh, I, I'm a little bit afraid that he's going to not hit enough to because he's going to be stuck in left field. But w- we are playing in a low offense time, and guys who guys who can put bat to ball and hit doubles all day are are going to have some value. This is so depressing. (laughs) 
I mean, the draft, we're going to do a draft review, of course, in a couple of weeks, and that'll be more exciting because there ought to be actual people to talk about. Yep. I just feel like yeah. last year it was like it was like exciting. We had, you know, I had seen Sean Newcomb, and we had important debates about like Michael Conforto versus Kyle Schwarber, and philosophical questions about Hit Tool. And now it's just like, well, they'll probably take some college dude they can sign for eight hundred fifty thousand dollars. It's really not not fun doing this when the Mets don't have a first round pick. <sighs> Oh, well. Such is life. And such is your 2015 draft preview. This is going to be a short podcast. We went an hour. So that's an added bonus for you as my dog is whining about something. Could you deal with the dog? No, I don't know what its problem is. Oh, my God. It's like... Why I don't have children. <laughs> so I will actually, before before we wrap up, and of course, thanks to Alex for joining us, I'm going to sneak in uh, IFK Gothenburg update, because that's what we do on the show. They played today against Elfsburg. Won 1-0. Went five points clear at the top of the Elfsvenskian Liga. Very exciting. I'm thrilled. Okay, they have lost one game since we adopted them on the podcast. It's very exciting. Lost I, have no idea I know, it's fine. Just, you just let me ramble. Lost of eBay scored again. Upping his... Uh, I'm sure upping his price in the transfer market come this winter. But five points clear. 12 games into the 30-game season feeling good if they can pull off the uh, the domestic double I'm going to uh, I don't know, I'll do something one more extensive update on uh, Monday they play this Sunday in Stockholm against Hammerby who I think just beat uh, the third place team so it's not going to be an easy one but they're a bottom half of the table team so you hope they get a result there and outside of that I think I can just about wrap things up for episode uh, 121 it's Amazing Avenue Audio the official podcast of your SB Nation New York website, Amazing Avenue. You can find us on the internet at AmazingAvenue.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Amazing Avenue. Join our Facebook group at Facebook.com backslash Amazing Avenue. You can find the podcast on iTunes. Just search for Amazing Avenue Audio. You can listen or subscribe right there. I encourage you to do both. I also encourage you to rate and review the podcast. You can also find the podcast on the Stitcher app. Download directly from BlogTalkRadio.com backslash Amazing Avenue. Or listen to the embedded player that goes up in the podcast post at Amazing Avenue proper. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro. You can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Paternostro. My co-host this week was Alex Nelson. You can find him on Twitter at ALXNelson. And writing about uh, guys and Mets won't pick tomorrow, apparently. Also, I think that's going Exciting. to be happening. It is. That was the housekeeping. This was your podcast. And we'll, uh, we'll see you next week. We'll have... Maybe I don't. So I we were debating this on on Monday, and I couldn't remember. The first day of the draft, do they go through to round two? I believe they do. I thought it, I thought it was round one comp, uh, round one sup comp A, round two uh, uh, comp B. I uh, the first seventy five picks or so. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's the way they do it. And then it's 3 through 10 on Tuesday and 11 through 40 right. on, on the conference call on Wednesday. I thought that's what it was. So if we record on Monday, which we may, uh, we'll be discussing that. More likely we'll be discussing David Wright's broken back. <laughs> such such glorious topics. <laughs> it's just somebody <laughs> – I got a, a message from one of our regular listeners. who's like, can you make the podcast less depressing? I'm like, I can only work with the material – I'm uh, I'm given. But I told him we were doing the draft preview, which maybe has been less depressing. 2010 draft was pretty good. All in all. Yeah. You got Jacob DeGrom and Matt Harvey. You can't complain. You really can't. And Eric Adele's not bad. Maybe that's what this uh, this draft will be. I mean, to get two of the top 20 pitchers in baseball out of this draft, it'll be a very good draft. Anything's possible. I keep, like, I'm, I'm pumping the top 20 pitcher in baseball thing because I gave a quote to a, a New York newspaper. Like, who's, like, the breakout? I'm like, Jacob DeGrom's going to be a top 20 pitcher in baseball this year. I mean, he was last year, too. Like, on the like the rate stuff. I mean, he's really going to, you know. He's really doing it this year. He is. I felt good about it. Even though we had a panic discussion on the podcast a few weeks ago, there was something wrong with Jacob DeGrom. After his like bad start against the Cubs, I think. Mm-hmm. And then let's see. I'll look this up real fast before we sign off for the week, so I can watch Matt Harvey pitch. Um. So since we had that discussion on the show, and we really concluded there's nothing wrong with Jacob Degrom. Maybe he wasn't a top twenty pitcher in baseball. Um, uh, since then, he's made four starts. He's won three of the four. He's three and zero. For those of you like pitcher wins, he's thrown twenty nine and a third innings. He struck out thirty four and walked one, <laughs> and given up three runs. That's a pretty good stretch. Lowered his ERA from three point four six to two point four one. I think the Mets have a winner with him. I, he's a pretty good pitcher. It's top a, twenty, I understand. Yeah, top twenty in baseball, but whatever you whatever you want to, uh, whatever your preferred metric, I think. I mean, that's the problem. It's like you have to have a conversation about this dude seven starts into a season, and he's had three bad starts in the seven. Now he's had eleven starts. He still had three bad starts, and it's really good otherwise. The stuff gets washed out over the course of a season. You know, it's the first 50 innings. Like, you know, I say it all the time. You don't want to predict the next 50 innings of any pitcher. No, no. it's Stuff can happen. Ridiculous. Which is exactly why you don't draft college closers. <laughs> A fair point. And if the Mets do, which I don't think they will, but it's certainly possible. But if they do, and whoever they draft, you'll hear about it next week. Or a couple weeks afterwards, we'll see. At some point on Amazing Avenue Audio. <laughs>